This morning, we find ourselves over in the book of First Thessalonians. We're trying to close out this book, and we've been in chapter 5 now for a couple weeks, and we're looking at the subject matter of living blamelessly within the church, living blameless within the church. And the subtitle is Relationships Require Responsibility. And that's true in the church. It's true in our works. It's true in our marriages. Relationships just don't happen. You have to put hard work into them. And so we've been looking at verses uh, 12 through 22, <clears throat> this, this new section, and it's really a long series of exhortations and, and uh, commands from Paul to this young church. Remember, this church is young. They're so young, they don't even have elders yet, okay? They're just a couple months, maybe six months old in the Lord, and they came out of a pagan background, and so he got them all excited about the coming of the Lord, the return of the Lord. We've looked at that in chapter 4. And then he says, basically, you know what? Um, That's great. Look forward to that. We should live in anticipation of Christ's coming, but you're still here on earth. (laughs) And you still got a job to do. Don't forget that. The problem with the church today, we have a lot of churches that just gather together for their little holy huddle, and uh, that's all they do. That's not what we're called to do as a church. We're called to be what? The salt and the light out in a lost and dying world. And if people are to see Christ, they should first see it in the church, in us as those who belong to the church. And so this upcoming section here is focusing on our behavior as members of Christ's church, not only as leaders, but also as the congregation, as members of the church. And last week we looked at this introduction, and we, that's all we got was the introduction, so we're going to finish it off today. And it's this section from verse 12 all the way down to verse 22. And um, I just want to read verses uh, 12 and 13 for us as we get into this. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Key words there, in the Lord, and admonish you. Verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So he wants this church to know that, first of all, they're, they're doing pretty good. But these commands have to do with practical life within the church. And we talked about last week how healthy relationships don't just happen. You have to work at it. It takes a while. It takes diligence. It takes sweat. It takes sometimes tears to create the relationships that you need with the congregation and the pastor and the elders and the leadership of a church and the congregation with one another. And so this is what Paul finds so pressing that he's got to close this letter off after he talks about the day of the Lord. He says, you know what? I've got to leave some practical instruction with you. And remember, the church is the most blessed institution on earth because it's blessed by our Lord. And he says the gates of hell will not overpower it. And the problem with our churches today is we have a a wrong definition of the church. And I'm going to talk about that in a few moments. We have to realize what the Bible says about the church. But the church at Thessalonica here was very grounded spiritually they were growing incredibly they were striving toward holiness and paul kind of summarized their behavior in verse one of chapter four if you just look back there he says finally then brothers we urge you uh, we ask and urge you in the lord jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please god just as you were doing so he was affirming this small congregation this new set of believers and he's saying hey you're doing a great job but he says that you do so more and more in other words the best you do is not good enough in the christian life we need to continue to grow in our faith in our walk we never arrive this side of glory we never can relax we can never take a break because the cost is too high We have to be ever diligent to answer the call of the gospel. And he commended them several times. And last week we said, really, this church is, is, we summarized it in in 
five things here. We said it was a saved church. It was a sanctified church. It was a surrendered church. It was a soul winning church. And it was a second coming church. And we said that's what our church should be about. We need to understand what it means to be the church. And you noticed, I pointed out last week, Paul didn't point out any scandalous doctrines that were taking place in this young church. Uh, they were brand new believers, but they weren't perfect by any, by any means. They were saved out of paganism, and so Paul had to address some things with them. But for the most part, they were doing very well. And we have to understand the proper definition of the church. Well, what is the definition of the church? What's the biblical definition of the church? The, the, the Bible describes the church as those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation the salvation of their souls, and the forgiveness of their sins. It consists of believers, and only believers. And we've mixed that up today. And today we live in what we call the church age. The church began when? On the day of what? Pentecost, right? And it, it is, we're living in the midst of the church age today. And someone asked me last week when we were talking about the, the rapture, I said, yeah, there's nothing to preclude the coming of Christ back for his church. And I said this, the rapture of the church will happen after the last person who's elected puts their faith and trust in Christ. Well, that's kind of true and it's not true. I should have said the last person in the church age because there's going to be people that are saved after the rapture. Okay, And so just to make the record very clear, I'm speaking of those within the church, within the church age, and that's when the rapture will happen. But today, churches have redefined the church, and unfortunately what they've done is they've included believers in the mix of the church, and that's not what the church is. The church has kind of become a, a, a Bible land amusement park. I'm probably dating myself, but anybody here have ever heard of Terry Talbot? Talbot Brothers, old, old Christian, Rudy probably knows, but most of you may not know. Look up this song on YouTube. It's called Bible Land. Bible Land. He, he wrote a, just a comedic song about the state of the church. This was back in the 80s. And, um, and he calls it Bible Land. And he approaches it kind of like it's an amusement park. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a, it's funny, but it's sad. Okay, it's, it's a sad commentary on the church. And that's really what the church has become. Um, and so before we look at these responsibilities on, in the church, of the congregation and of the leaders, I think we need a major shift in the American church. We need to get back to what God has called the church to be about. Because a lot of times people look at the church as this business or this, we hear it, service organization and we're here to provide benefits for everybody that comes to the church. And unfortunately, it's a very consumer-driven definition of the church. And churches have bought into this. So if they bought into this, what do they try to do? They try to create, hey, the best show on earth on Sunday morning. So you'll come to their church. And it's kind of, sometimes it's like going to a rock concert. Sometimes it's, you know, I'm very entertained by some of the creativity that they do it's amazing but their goal is to reach the unbelievers that's the main goal that's why they call their churches user friendly okay of the new church growth movement and so we have to stop and we have to say well wait a minute what is the church about you know, so when, when these people come to that church because maybe they like the, the worship leader or they like the music or they like the pastor or they, they just like the food after the service or whatever, well, if any of those things change, guess what happens? Just like any other customer <laughs> in a consumer-driven mentality, they say, well, wait, you're not providing what I want now. You've changed some things, so I, I'm going to go somewhere else that'll give me what I want. And that's what we have today. And I'm inundated pretty much weekly with, you know, emails about, you know, marketing techniques to use in your church. Now, do we have to do certain things? Yes. Should we have some, some understanding of reaching out to the community? Definitely. That's what we're about. 
But churches often cater to this consumer mindset by, by marketing their church as the best whatever fill-in-the-blank available. And people are looking for the best Sunday show week to week. And when they don't find it, they simply move on. Well, here in our text, verses 12 to 15 shows us that relationships require responsibility. And today we're going to see the leader's responsibilities toward the church, the pastor and the elders, what's their responsibility, and then also the congregation or the church, church's responsibility toward the leaders. And then in the following weeks, we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15, and it shows, guess what, the church's responsibility for one another. Not only how we react with leadership and the congregation, but also how the congregation acts toward one another. And the whole point of this section is down at the end of, of the chapter here. He basically is saying that God will sanctify, he will inspire peace in his people, that they may be blameless at the coming of Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal, that people find no blame within the church. Uh, we got a long ways to go. Okay, that's just, frankly, that's in any church. And so the local church and its leaders have a mutual responsibility in the Lord. And we're going to be looking at these responsibilities of the church leaders and then the responsibility of the church members, hopefully, today. And so it's, it's very important, that relationship between the congregation and its pastors or its elders. If, if the church breaks down at that point, um, you're going to have a very unhealthy church. You're going to have a very critical church because the relationship that you have between the congregation and its leaders is very crucial within the church. And we're going to talk about these things today. And so the leaders of the church are identified in, in four basic New Testament terms. And we said this last week, just quickly, elder, um, overseer, uh, pastor, and then also just a generic leader okay, within the church. And these are people that are tasked and have responsibilities within the church to lead the congregation. And so the first point here on our outline is, is emphasizing the church leaders and their responsibilities. Um, we'll get to the congregation in a few moments. But church leaders are responsible, first of all, they're to work diligently in the church. Uh, to work diligently in the church. I once was driving Uber, and I told the, the guy was asking what I did for a living, and um, he said, do you do Uber full-time? And I said, no, I just do it part-time in the mornings, take people to the airport, and I kind of like just talking to people and handing out tracks. It's kind of fun, but I uh, don't do it anymore. But <laughs> um, when I did that, when I, usually they'd ask you, well, what do you do for a living? And I'd tell them, well, I, I pastor a church in Rebus City, and they sometimes, usually they were very kind of interested. They want to talk more. And I had one guy, kind of skeptical, and he said, oh, that's a good gig. I mean, what do you work, Sunday, 10 to 11, 10 to 12 maybe? That's all you do, right? And I thought, whoa, this guy has no idea what a pastor does. But I understand, I understand, because it can seem that way sometimes, okay? Um, and you know what, as a, as a, a pastor who is full-time and paid by the church, okay, we can't forget the elders who may not be full-time and don't get anything from the church, but probably do more than the pastor. All right, that's very important to realize that. Um, and so this is a calling that God puts on your life. It's not something I necessarily chose to do. I could never imagine in my wildest imagination or dreams doing this, not because it was something I attained to, but I would be scared to death. I mean, I was a kid in high school. I couldn't even stand up and give the teacher my name. You know, I'd fumble it somehow and turn red and sit down in shame. Uh, it just could not function in a crowd of people. But you know what? God put a call on my life when I was saved, and I answered the call. And, you know, it's been interesting ever since. Uh, and I mean that in a good way and a bad way, frankly. Uh, but here, Paul is, is really speaking of, of those who work diligently in the church. And he may have to bring up this up because some of these people who were very new believers in the church of Thessalonica, Paul, they weren't at the elder stage yet. He doesn't, you don't find those terms that describe pastor and elder and overseer within this book. It just says those who kind of 
have oversight over you, okay? But it's not that official term. And so these were probably very new believers that Paul and Timothy and Silas had discipled. And because they had to leave, because of all the persecution and everything, they had to leave this small young church. And Paul probably figured, you know what? I'm just going to read this crowd and, and say a quick prayer and hopefully the Lord will give me the, the names that I need to put in charge because somebody's got to be in charge. There's, there's, there's organization within the local church. It's not just a, a free-for-all. You don't just come to church and everybody just does whatever they want. There's a structure to it. And the Bible lays that structure out. And so it's important that we, we understand, if you, if you look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, just turn over a page, uh, verses 6 and 12, he, he has to point this out, and he says this, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's kind of putting a little more authority. Remember, here he opens up chapter 5, or, or the text here in verse 12 of chapter 5, we ask you, brothers. Well, now, in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians, verse 6, he says, now we command you, brothers. Something's changed here. In the, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. They're not doing anything within the church. They're just idle and not according with the tradition that you received from us. In other words, we didn't teach you that. Paul wasn't a loafer. He didn't come and just loaf in Thessalonica. He, he traveled all over the place, starting churches and discipling them. He says in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. And then he even goes further, because apparently someone's accusing him of freeloading off the congregation. He says in verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. So this is, you know, very specific for the, the church at Thessalonica here, but it's important to understand that they didn't want to cause a, a problem. These were people who were saved out of paganism. They, they come to the church, they probably didn't understand as far as giving offerings and things like that to the Lord yet, and so they probably didn't have a lot of support. It was a brand new church. Paul couldn't say, hey, you know what, uh, by the way, here's my fee. <laughs> by the way, be very skeptical of people that approach ministry that way. I've learned over the years, you know, ask people to come and speak at our church. And, and when they're interested in how many people you have and how much they're going to get, I just cross them off the list. I don't care how many good books they wrote or whatever. And so it's very important that you realize that. That for some people, as Emmanuel read in our reading this morning, there, there's people that are after your money. A lot of them are on TV. And they make no bones about it. And when you do some investigation of some of these individuals, they are not the best investment for your finances. Some of them are, are downright heretics, and people are giving them millions and millions and millions of dollars every year so they can go buy a new jet and another million-dollar mansion somewhere else in the world. Now, they're not all that way. There's a lot of good teachers, too. But, you know, use some common sense when you're supporting other ministries outside the church. And by the way, I think this goes without saying here, but I think some people need to understand that, you know what, it's, it's great to support different ministries. We do that, my wife and I do it, but our primary giving is to this church. And especially for members of this church, the primary giving should be to your home church. And so if you want to know more about how the church membership works and everything, we're having that class first week in November. I'd encourage you to sign up. There's a sheet back there in the lobby. But you have to understand that a lot of these leaders, even within the church at, at Thessalonica, were probably bivocational. You know, been there, done that. I've been in many smaller churches where I was a full-time youth pastor, but I had to have a full-time job, too, just because the church was small and they couldn't afford two pastors' salaries. And so you did that. You worked two, two positions. And what was happening here, apparently, when it came to push to shove... Uh, the church duties of these leaders in this church were taking second place, okay? And so they weren't really fulfilling maybe all of their responsibilities. And so Paul had to address that. 
And even in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul addresses this same thing in verses 3 to 14, speaking about his apostleship. People attacked him. They said, hey, who are you to come and tell us what to do and take our money? <laughs> you know, that's kind of what they were saying. And uh, he says in verse 3, this is my defense of those who would examine me. And he starts to speak about himself. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? You say, well, what does that mean? Well, if you take along a believing wife, guess what? That's an extra expense. You know, sometimes you ask a speaker to come, and they'll tell you right up front, you know, I don't travel alone. I say, praise the Lord. You know, well, I've got to bring my wife. You know, well, that's great. We'll pay for her too. You know, that, that's an important aspect of of that kind of ministry where people are traveling around. It's better that they do bring their wife than, than leave her at home and be out and get in some trouble or something. So at least they have some accountability on their road or they'll bring an assistant or they'll do whatever. But here he says, don't we have a right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And Paul was one who was a tent maker. So you know, he, he did work at times, but sometimes apparently he didn't. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The answer is rhetorical. Not, well, nobody would do that. And then he says, do I say these things on human authority, Paul says? No. Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Why? You're just going to work them to death. He says, it is for oxen, is it for oxen that God is concerned? In other words, is that illustration just about oxen? No. Does he not certainly speak of for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, and here's where he gets to the point, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have never made use of this right. So Paul is saying as an apostle, you know what? I have a right to come and say, hey, you know what? You need to take care of me. You need to put me up. You need to feed me. And you need to feed my family too and my wife. And people started to complain and say, hey, this costs too much. Leave your wife at home. We're not going to do all this. And he said, hey, wait a minute. You know, I have a right to those things, but I am not going to demand them of you, is really the idea. But he says, we rather endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I think any pastor who is paid by the local congregation who really has her priorities right, um, that wouldn't be a deal breaker. In other words, if the Say the church just shrank and there's nobody here but three people and they couldn't afford. You know, I don't think a pastor that has his priorities right would say, hey, well, you know what? If you can't pay me, I ain't going to do nothing for you and leave. I'm going to go find a bigger gig. Or t See, that's, that's the mentality of what's going on in the church, even among leaders today. They're always looking at it as a step up. Oh, well, I, I pastor a church of 50 people. Well, I'm looking for that church of 100. Then I'm looking for that church of 500. And then 1,500 and mega church. And, you know, that's, that's the whole thing. Because it's, it's, it's really not a calling to them. It's a position. And they look at it in a very secular way sometimes. And so it's just trying to climb the ladder. Which is completely wrong in my view. And I think one day they'll find that out. But he, he says here... In verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get to eat food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And this, is, this is not a comfortable subject for me, okay? Because, you know, you don't, you don't like to talk about your own... <laughs> Uh, job in this way, and it is a job, but it's also a calling. It's a ministry. I don't view it just as simply a job, and that's the, the major difference. And I think when you're called as a, a pastor to go into ministry in what I would call full-time ministry, you are sacrificing. You're sacrificing a lot. 
I mean, there's a lot of things, other things that I probably could have done in life and made a lot more money doing them if that was my end game. But that's never been um, the end game. You know, when God puts a call on your life, it's not, well, how much are you going to pay me? That's not even on your mind. It doesn't even filter down to that level. You trust God, and he will take care of you. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, Those who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard, and he qualifies it here, at preaching and teaching. Double honor refers both to respect from the people they're teaching and also to financial uh, remuneration. And, and that's an important thing for, to, to get, get something in return. Why? Because you're committing your life to doing something that doesn't have the normal uh, perks, you would say, of a secular job. I remember one time I was talking to a group of men and they were talking about the economy. This is back in the, I think, the early 2000s. And, and they were saying their businesses are just hurt and hurting and, oh, man, you know, and they're talking about their, how they've taken such a loss. And, and then, you know, they looked at me and they said, well, Pastor, you have nothing to worry about. You know, you got all the security in the world. And I thought, what are they talking about? There's no security in what I do. If you stop and think about it, I mean, one wrong move, one small stupid mistake that I make could disqualify me for the rest of my life to do this. That's, that's, that's an amazing weight <laughs> that you carry. You know, and, and you have to understand that here it's saying, hey, if you're going to work hard at preaching and teaching, um, there is some honor that's given out that's due those people. Um, to do that job well is not easy. It's not. It's, it's, I mean, maybe some people are just gifted and they can get up and just talk. I mean, I've met people like that. You know, they're very gifted at, at speaking. And, boy, they can just get up and they have a, like a photographic memory. And so, you know, they read a book. They know all, everything. You know, they, they just get up and just regurgitate everything. And it's, it's, it's very uh, effortless for them. Um, for me, I, I'm just kind of a little short upstairs. So it's, it's kind of, you know, a little harder it requires a little more labor um, to put in. Uh, these messages don't just float down from heaven on Sunday morning. Oh, okay, here it is. No. Uh, it's, it requires some, some difficult. I mean, think about it this way. If, if you were in your place of employment and you were required by your employer to give two to three one-hour talks or speeches each week, dealing with a variety of different subjects, but to the same group of people. Requiring new content for each talk, and you weren't really allowed to repeat each message or all the content you had. You couldn't say it every day. You had to come up with something new. And then you add to that administrative duties that your employee gave you to deal with these same individuals, Add to that just taking time to get to know these individuals in a more personal way. Add to that providing uh, organizational structure and, and financial oversight needed for the, that group of people. Add to that being responsible to be sure that their places of employment, their offices, and, and their, their employment site is being maintained and being well kept. Add to that being required to maintain your own household in a way that would be an example to all those people. Add to that, overseeing the social events and the get-togethers for those people under your care. I mean, I could go on and on. But I just want to say, as I was jotting this stuff down the other day, I looked at the list and I said, you know what, Lord, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I'm not qualified to do this. I'm not skilled to do this. And all of a sudden, the answer just kind of popped into my head, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly where I want you. You can't do this on your own. You have to be totally dependent upon me, the Lord, to do this for you. 
And you know what? In a smaller church, it's, it's a little different in a church of our size because sometimes, you know, you may schedule your whole week out, but unplanned things happen. And sometimes they happen in, in groups multiple times over. And they throw your planned schedule into a whirlwind. You know, things like somebody becomes ill, you got to go to the hospital, or somebody dies, or plan a funeral, someone is needing counseling, someone, something happens on the campus and needs to be fixed, or whatever. I mean, you know, between Ken and I, we have our hands full. Full. And as pastor and elders, you know, we need to be able to adapt. We need to be able to change and adjust our personal and work schedule on the fly, continuously. I mean, I remember one, one time when I first came here and the water backed up from the baptistry downstairs and I, uh, I was here late at night and went, I don't know what I was doing down there, but luckily, luckily I did go down there by the Lord's providence, I should say. I was downstairs and water's coming out of the floor and it's, the whole basement's flooded in the church. And I'm looking for a shop vac, and who do I, what do I do, you know? I called Ken. It was, we were here until 2, 3 in the morning sucking up water downstairs, you know. That's just one of the small little things that happen. There are other things that, I mean, that, that totally stress you out. And uh, it's, it's a very fluid <laughs> uh, career choice. It's, it's constantly changing. I remember when I was going to Kaiser, I used to have a doctor, real nice guy, but every time I went into him for a checkup or for something wrong or whatever, he'd say, always say the same thing. I think he was Jewish. I'm not sure, but he'd always say the same thing. He's pastor, you know, that's your stress. You got a stressful job. You got a very, very stressful job. And I'm like, what's he talking about? I mean, I always pushed back on that statement. I thought, my job's not stressful. I can't imagine this job being stressful. I find it challenging. I find it very demanding. But I never looked at it as a stressful job or position within the church. Maybe just because I like to do what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling God's calling in my life. It just comes kind of naturally to me. But at the same time, it doesn't, if you understand. But then I began to realize, and I realized this earlier this year, as I was dealing with some things, what he said was sort of true. I kind of identified what he was saying. I mean, life is usually stressful enough, right, for normal people. Um, just living your own life. I mean, my life's stressful enough. But as an elder, but as a pastor, you're really called upon to be part of more than just your life. It's not just about your life. If it was about my life, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in Idaho with my grandkids, frankly. Not that I don't love you, but I'm just saying that's the way it is. But God has a purpose. He has a plan. You're really called upon to be part of the lives of the people whom you pastor, your congregation. And when someone in your church has a problem, guess what? It becomes your problem. When the leadership identifies with that problem, it becomes their problem. We're very much a family toward one another, and we provide mutual care toward one another. So as a leader within the church, you really own not just your own issues and your own problems, which are many, but you've got to pile on that. Really, you're called upon to bear the issues and the problems of everyone. And frankly, that can be stressful. I know Ken and I can't even probably count on two fingers or, or two hands and toes and everything else. The nights, sleepless nights that we've spent because something happened in the church. You feel responsible. You're called upon to bear those burdens. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. I'm not up here whining. I'm just trying to give you a glimpse into the life of an elder or a pastor. And I've been blessed in my life to be serving the Lord for almost 40 years now in some form of ministry, youth ministry, and then here at this church for almost 25. 
And I can't imagine doing anything else. And I've had opportunities to do other things. I mean, I remember going to pastor's retreats and, and things when I was younger. And I would, you know, thinking, well, I'll glean something from these older men. And, and frankly, all I heard was pastors complaining. Just complaining. Whining. Complaining about their ministry. Complaining about their congregation. Complaining about their life in general. And I, I, I mean... To be all honest, I mean, I was respectful to them because they're older than me, but I just wanted to say, you know, why don't you go do something else? Because you're not, you're not a very good advertisement for people to go into ministry. I mean, that would scare anybody off. I love my calling as a pastor. I can't imagine doing anything else, even though it doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not a people person. I'm not a real touchy-feely kind of person. Most of you know that. But you know what? It, it forces me to stay in the Word. And I don't have confidence in myself. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd be in the Word every day. I don't think I would be. I don't have that kind of confidence. I'm not that big of a spiritual giant. And so it forces me to know that, okay, I, yeah, Sunday I've got to stand before a group of people and hopefully make something sense, make some sense out of what I'm trying to say. I've got to do the same thing on a, on a Wednesday night. You know, you, you, you bear some responsibility in that, and it forces you to stay in the Word. It also forces me to love God's people. Because like I said, I'm very much, ask my wife, I'm a loner. I'm a loner. Um, I'm the kind of personality, you put me in a group of people, I mean, I can do it. I've learned how to adjust and, you know, oh, yeah, you know you're, you're talking to people and things like that. But I go home, I am drained. You know, I, I see this very clearly when we have people over the house for dinner or, or you know, Thanksgiving, whatever it is, and, and we have people come over, and, and man, I'm, you know, for days leading up to this event, I am just crazy. You know, my wife's kind of, just relax, it'll all work out. Yeah, but what about this? What about that? You know, you, you want things to go well, and I just, it's so consuming, though, it just wears you out. And then the people get there, and yeah, yeah, have a good time and everything. And then, you know, everybody goes home. And I'm like, hey, I got to take a shower, go to bed. My wife's like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch some shows, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. You know, boy, I think people left too early. I'm like, what? You know, it's just personality. It doesn't mean you don't like the people, but it's just, wow. And so even though it doesn't come naturally, it forces me to love God's people. And it also forces me to be accountable with my own personal life. You know, there's, there's a weight to be on your shoulders when you know that people are watching. I mean, just the other, the other week, I was driving down Jefferson, stopped at the red light at El Camino, driving the old car that I have, the 1995 Toyota Camry that Rosa's son so graciously gave me. And uh, I was driving that, and I don't have a phone holder. And I had ordered something on the app from McDonald's. This is confession time. <laughs> So I picked up the phone to look to see if it was ready and, you know, whatever. And so the light turned green, and so I had the phone in my hand because, I don't know, I just had it, and I turned the corner, and there was the police. So, you know, this River City police officer pulls me over, and I'm thinking, huh. I'm frantically looking for my chaplain ID and that Lord's providence. I could not find it. So I was above this thing. I didn't tell him what, anything. And, and I thought, well, he'll see it on the computer when he looks it up. Surely he probably won't give me a ticket for this. You know? And all, all it is is just having the phone in your hand. I wasn't using it to talk or anything. And I remember you know, him coming back. Okay, sir, here, here's your information back. And uh, you just sign here. I'm like, you're really giving me a ticket over this? You know, I got angry. I'm like, what? And I, I just, you know, I, thought, I told him, I said, you should go up here to to uh, McGarvey and Euclid and sit there. I mean, you'd make lots of money for the city because people go through that stop sign nonstop. You know, I watch him do it from our church. Still, he, he did, new guy, didn't know who I was. So I thought, oh, whatever. So I struggle with this, right? I mean, the idea, okay, well, this, is, this is an issue, okay? And then I'm thinking, oh, what are people thinking? You know, all these cars are driving by. Here I am. I'm huddled down in the car trying to hide. Yeah, but it forces me to be accountable in my own personal life. 
it allows me to testify to the faithfulness of God to his servants. You know, God has never been unfaithful. He's always met our needs over the years. And sometimes, you know, our, my own mismanagement of funds and stuff put us in a hole that I thought we'd never dig out of. But you know what? God is faithful. God is faithful. So church leaders are, are responsible to work diligently. You know, it's not a, a job that you don't show up and you, you can just do whatever you want. I'm very much a creature of habit every week. And I can't, you know, sometimes people ask, well, when's your day off? I, say, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, don't get me wrong, the schedule's flexible, so you can take whatever day, whatever, but, but at the same time, there's a lot on the platter, okay? And so you have to be responsible as church leaders. Secondly, church leaders are responsible to have charge over you, look at this, in the Lord, to have charge over you. Plato uses this same word, have charge over you, that group of words in the original language in the Greek to refer to leadership in an army or leadership in a state or a a party, kind of political party kind of a thing. In the New Testament, Paul uses it when he says both elders and deacons must be good managers of their own households, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And when he said those elders that rule well should be considered worthy of double honor in 1 Timothy 5.17. That word rule there is the same idea. They have charge over you. So it includes responsibility for the management or the oversight of all aspects of the local church. Well, what are those aspects? Preaching the word, guarding the flock from any false teaching, guiding the flock in the ways of the Lord, helping resolve conflicts within the membership, overseeing church finances, providing overall direction for the church. And elders aren't allowed to do this by lording it over the congregation. In other words, you know, you, 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 you don't just get, because you're an elder or a pastor, you don't just automatically get respect from people. Nowadays, you get disrespect mostly, frankly. I mean, I can't count the number of times driving an Uber and say, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, something happened with this guy. And so we can't lord this over the flock, but rather, what, it, what does it mean? It means, you know, we don't, we don't just sit up here and point our finger. You do this, you do that. That would be lording it over you. Okay, you have to lead by example. You're a leader, but you're, you're, you're a servant leader. You have to serve even more so in the role as a leader or a pastor or elder in the church. And the church is required to follow the elders' leadership and to submit to them. Unless there's some serious doctrinal error or sin going on. Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews, this is very scary for those men who desire to be elders. I know it is for me daily. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. They're keeping watch over your souls. As those, listen to this, who will have to give an account you know, it's not a free pass. You know, the mistakes I make, I'm going to be held accountable for as a pastor, as an elder. And then he says, let them do this with joy. So first of all, he kind of says, hey, you need to submit to your leaders. But also he says, they're watching over your souls. They have to give an account and let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. You know, it's, it's kind of a very practical verse when you look at it. I mean, if you go to work and you're constantly pointing your finger in your boss's face and complaining about everything that has to do with your job, okay, um, it's not going to go good for you. It's the same thing within the church. Not that the elder's the boss. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an authority structure within the church. It's kind of like the authority in our home. Husbands are responsible for the direction of their families. It's the husband that's responsible. The spiritual direction of their family. But it doesn't mean they're allowed just to be dictators. I met a lot of husbands that that's all they are. They're dictators. They dictate what goes on in their home. That's not honoring to God. 
Any God-given authority is, is primarily a responsibility. It's not a perk. You know, it's, it's a very overwhelming kind of thing that you bear as an elder. That you will be held responsible for this one day. But those under authority also need to submit to authority. Right? And that's not a very American concept today. We don't like to submit to authority. Um, but here and in the scripture, they appoint elders. You don't vote for the most popular guy on the block or anything like that. You appoint them when they are brought to, it's brought to their attention by God that, hey, you know what, maybe you should be an elder. And they have that desire to become an elder. And if any men here today have that desire, hey, I'd, I'd really like to know more about this. Come and talk to us. We need all the help we can get. Pray about it. Because unless God's calling you, don't do it. I'm telling you, do not do it. Uh, but the man should be doing the work, and because of that, he is to be recognized. Elders must work hard. And then thirdly here, they have charge, they work diligently, they have charge over, and then church leaders are responsible to admonish the church. Admonish the church. Well, what does that mean? It means to give you instruction. Um, In verse 14, he says, admonish the unruly. If you look down there, same word. Paul's the only person, by the way, in the New Testament to use this word. You don't find it in any other writings. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, he reminded the Ephesian elders, he was talking to them, he says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish Every one of you with tears. It has the nuances of what you would call verbal correction. (laughs) It speaks of really steering someone back on the right path when they've strayed off. Um whether it's individually or even a larger group of people. And that's, that's one of the, the, the tasks of a pastor or an elder. But it's not just the task of, for the elders. It's really a task for every church member, the elder and the pastor being one of the members of the church, obviously. And so he tells us there, admonish the idol in verse 14. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Right? This is spoken to the congregation. But it's especially the task of elders. And, um, I mean, let's face it, admonishing someone, at least for me, is never a pleasant experience. I don't like to admonish people. It's never a pleasant task. It's always a burden, like you're bearing. Um, and because usually the person that's being admonished, what do they do? Do they just give you a big hug and a kiss on the cheek and say, oh, this is wonderful. My pastor's admonishing me. No, they resist it. They resist your counsel. They, they, they attack you because maybe the, the, the response isn't what they wanted. They don't want to face what you're pointing out in their lives. And a lot of times they'll, you know, look at you and say, well, who do you think you are? You're not all that. It's irrelevant. If you've answered the call of God to be an elder or pastor, it's irrelevant about that. You have to do what God has called you to do. Why? Because you care about them. You want them to be all that God wants them to be. That's really the heart of biblical love, if you think about it. So part of admonishing someone, if they're heading in the wrong direction, is not pleasant, but it's needful. I mean, think about it in, in the shepherd illustration, right? A good shepherd doesn't watch some sheep in his flock stray over near the cliff and sit there on his rear end and say, well, that sheep sure is stupid. I wonder if he's going to jump off. <laughs> no, they don't do that. Rather, the shepherd does everything he can to keep that sheep from danger. And harm. The main job of a faithful pastor is to preach the word, to teach the word. That's the main job. 
which involves reproving, it involves rebuking, it involves exhorting. This is what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Look at this with me. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That patience part is the hard time for me. <laughs> that's, that's the hard part of that. You know, you teach somebody something and it's like, okay, you're not getting it? What's the, what's the problem here? You, know, you grow in patience. My wife's learned that in our relationship. Don't ask Steve for help with the computer. That's just not going to go well. It's not going to end well. <laughs> you know, it's just, it usually doesn't either. <laughs> Verse 3, for the time is coming, listen to this, when people will not endure sound teaching. Guess what? The time is here. The time is now. I mean, look around. But what? They have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers. They will gather people to themselves, teachers who suit their own passions. This goes back to this consumer mentality within the local church. And will turn away from listening to the truth. Can you imagine? They're turning away. They're turning the truth off. And they're saying, no, 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 we're going to go to this. We're going to listen to this person. Well, we know they're not teaching truth, but we like how he looks or how he speaks or whatever it might be. Off into myths. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's part of the ministry of a pastor is to do the work of the ministry, the, the evangelist part especially. And a lot of times, the unfortunate thing today with churches is they've wandered off the biblical path of what the definition of the church is, and they've included unbelievers in the church. So on Sunday mornings, and usually most churches you go into, um, you will have a service that's very much catered to, dumbed down to, unbelievers who are there in their presence. And the whole goal is a noble one. Well, we got to win these people for the Lord. My point is that doesn't necessarily have to happen on a Sunday morning. That's it's not really in the New Testament. They gathered together as believers for what? For spiritual things, for things like prayer and worship and hearing someone teach the word of God. And so it's important that we understand that. Now, you know, are we concerned about the unbeliever? Definitely. We want unbelievers to know that the only hope that they can have is hope in Christ. That's very clear. But at the same time, the goal of this church, especially on the gathering of the church on a Sunday morning, is to what? What is it? It's to edify who? The saints. To build up the saints. Those who are believers. We always include a gospel call. We always include the gospel. But it's not, it's not our primary focus. So those are the responsibilities of the church leaders. Now quickly, the church is responsible. The church and we'll cover this in five minutes quickly. So the church is responsible to know its leaders, to know its leaders. Notice it says there that you have to kind of appreciate the leaders. We ask you to respect those who labor among you. All right? The word is translated appreciate, respect, recognize, give recognition to. The Greek verb simply is the word know. Oida, to know. This probably means that they were to recognize certain men as, a, as the legitimate leaders of the church and give them due respect. And you can see the problem in this young church where everybody was pretty much saved within a couple months' time of each other. And now Paul's appointing somebody to not really elder or pastor, but to kind of oversee the congregation while they're gone. And probably some of the more immature people within the conference say, wait a minute, you know, I've been saved as long as this guy. Why, why aren't I, you know, part of the leader thing? And so they started to have a little struggle there. Dr. John Walbert says that this church has only been in existence a few months, so every member was relatively a new convert. None had any Bible seminary training, college training at all. 
Yet God raised some up to be some form of leader with them. Maybe not to the level of elder because they're not mentioned, but at least to oversee other, other, other people in the church. And so when he says there that the nuance of this to know, appreciate, uh, it's important to know each other. It's hard to lead. It's hard to submit to someone you don't know. And that's why sometimes when people come into our church and they want to be involved and they want to become a member, it's like, hey, you know what? There's a process to this. Because you're really, you're really introducing something brand new into something that's already running. And so you have to kind of take your time with the process. People have to take time to get to know each other. And so we're called as a congregation to know the leaders. And if you don't know us as leaders, call us. Reach out to us. I was telling somebody the other day, I said, this is the first church we've really been in where people haven't been like on a weekly basis in our house, almost on a daily basis. I mean, as a youth pastor, we'd come home, you know, whatever, and there'd be people in the house. You know, it's like, oh, when did you come? You know, oh, I just came over to hang out. Okay, cool, you know. Uh, we welcome that. Well, heads up might be nice, but I'm just saying, you know, it's not needed. You know, because that's the only way we're going to get to know each other. You know, uh, and, and that's, it's important for both sides of that. Uh, we spent um, some time last night over at Mitchell's house with uh, uh, Bruce and his wife and just Evan Ellen. It was, it, was, it was wonderful. We had young people there, and, and it, we just had a wonderful time of fellowship. Until they started playing some game, card game. No, it was good. It was all good. It was all good. But it's important to do that, right? I mean, you learn a lot about people that way. Spend time with them. Know your leaders. The church is also responsible to esteem its leaders very highly in love, it says. Why? Because of their work. This is so important to understand this. The word there translated esteem means to think or to consider um, it, that same verb, adverb, they're very highly, where it says esteem them very highly, is the same structure that's used in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says God is able to do what? Far more abundantly beyond you can ever. You know, that's the same phrase that's used here. So rather than gripe about the church leaders, as we are tended to do sometimes, uh, Paul says the church should hold them in the highest regard in love, not because you like them, not because they're the most personable person, but because of their work, because of their position. It's kind of like the President of the United States, okay? You may not respect the man, but you respect the office. I don't care who the president is. If he walks into the room, you stand up. You know, if you're military, you salute. You don't have the option to turn your back and you know, that's just the same, it's the same thing. You're respecting the work that they're called to. And their work is overseeing, it's guarding, it's shepherding those whom Christ has bought with his own blood. So it's not something to be entered into lightly. It's not easy work, as we already talked about. In one sense, every member, once again, of Christ's body is responsible to help shepherd the other members and our church shines in this area there's a lot of times people come up to me and oh you know you need to be praying for so-and-so because this i didn't even know what's going on and we're just a small church because they're already ministering they're already they're already ministering to that person and if if you sense that there's somebody in our congregation struggling or somebody in our congregation that's kind of going off the tracks or straying away from the lord then you should come alongside them and try to get them back on the track. That's the, the role. Romans 15, 14 says, I myself am satisfied, Paul writes, about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's key. When you're in a church where people are able to instruct or correct one another, you're in a good church. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual, key word there, should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. 
And then Paul says, keep watch over yourselves, lest you yourselves be tempted. Just because you're an elder, just because you're a pastor, it doesn't mean you're never tempted. You don't walk on water. We're subject to the same possible sins that everybody else is. You have to keep watch over yourself. Bear one another's burdens, he says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If the problem becomes bigger than something you can handle personally for somebody else in the congregation, then call Ken or I. Call a leader in the church and seek the help. And I think if we work together, we can really shepherd God's flock a lot better than just, oh, it's a pastor's job or it's the elder's job. No, it's everybody's job. Now, esteeming someone who's a pastor or an elder very highly does not mean this. It does not mean that you should ever raise any concerns or that you should never raise any problems that you see in the church, whether it's in the church or in that person's life. You know, you need to be open for criticism. You're held as an elder or as a pastor to a completely different standard. And so you have to be willing to hear that from people. Elders can't do their jobs well, though, if they're not aware of the problems that need to be addressed. So once again, it boils down to communication. But there's also a right way and a wrong way to bring up problems. We're to esteem that position very highly in love in the Lord. And with that attitude, you're free to bring up any problems or complaints to them. Um, and I just think that that's, that's important to understand. If, and if there's some misunderstanding between you and a leader in the church, it needs to be addressed. And Ken and I would very much appreciate you addressing it with us personally. You come to us personally and just talk. That's the best way to deal with any kind of problem. It's the easiest way to deal with it. And so pastors and elders are not exempt as, quote, God's anointed, as some of the word of faith people will tell you, oh, how dare you question God's anointed? No, that's, that's a false heretical doctrine. So if an elder confronts you about some sin or some shortcoming in your own life, um, thank God that he, they see it. Thank God they're willing to address it. You can still have a high regard for them in love because of their work. Thank them for admonishing you. Um, I mean, don't react in a way that says, well, who do you think you are? You've got bigger problems than I have. And you know, what gives you the right to correct me? That's how a lot of people will respond. God, God's word says that God gave them the right. He gave them that responsibility, and it's not one you take lightly. And so we have to esteem the leaders. Also, thirdly, the congregation is called to live at peace with one another. This is, this is a big, big issue, right? We have to be at peace with one another. If we're constantly stirring up dissension within the body of Christ, if we're constantly complaining about whatever, getting into little personal squabbles here and there with other members in the church, you're not making the pastor's job, you're not making the elder's job easy. You're making it more difficult. If there's a legitimate problem that needs to be addressed, let's do so. False doctrine or, or, or serious disobedience in the church needs to be dealt with, and we'll deal with it properly the way the Bible says. But a lot of times, churches divide over the stupidest issues color of the carpet or what kind of music they're playing or oh that guy had drums on the stage or whatever it might be it's ridiculous and Colossians 3.15 says let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body and be thankful be thankful you're part of a Bible believing Bible teaching church you know I get it we're not perfect nobody is so healthy relationships in a healthy church don't just happen they require responsibilities the leaders are responsible to work diligently, shepherding the flock, have charge over the church and the Lord, admonish the church as needed. And you, as a congregation, are responsible to recognize and respect church leaders, to esteem them very highly in love, and to live in peace with other church members. Amen?
Yeah, thank God we got through that. All right. I just want to read one, one verse, and then I'm going to close in prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord what? your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a church that's able to stand faithfully upon your word. And we do our best to try to teach it in a way that's sensible and yet true to what the Bible says. And Father, we're not interesting, interested in necessarily dumbing everything down for a culture that just seems to be going awry. Uh, Lord, if you had to adjust ministry for the culture, you'd be adjusting your ministry every two minutes because it's always something new. And Lord, we're not interested in that. We're interested in providing the Word of God to the people of God for His glory and His glory alone. And I pray that as the congregation receives the Word of God, that it would do a work in their hearts, that they would be steadfast, immovable, that they would continue to work heartily for the Lord until you return. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, they've heard the truth. They, they no doubt understand the truth. Father, I pray that you would call them to yourself. Lord, we can't do that for them. They have to acknowledge their need as a sinner before a holy God. They need to cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer. If it's prayed from a genuine, repentant heart, God will answer. And he will give you the, the, the freedom to understand that your, your sins are forgiven in Christ. And that burden will be lifted off of you. And he will deposit within you his Holy Spirit that will give you the ability to live the life for which you're called. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.